Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. In this chilling and inventive documentary with executive producers Errol Morris and Warner Herzog, the filmmakers examine a country where death squad leaders are celebrated as heroes, challenging them to reenact their real-life mass killings in the style of the American movies they love. And a hallucinatory result of, is a cinematic fever dream, an unsettling journey into the deep and in, deep into the imagination of mass murders and shockingly banal regimes of corruption and impunity they inhabit. We're joined today by the director of this remarkable documentary, The Act of Killing, Joshua Oppenheimer. Joshua, welcome to Film School. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, thank you, and I think this is the, the really the most uh, um, the most obvious question uh, is, well, first, how did you come to this project? How did you um, find out about the mass killings that was occurring in Indonesia, and and how did you? When did you decide you wanted to do a documentary about it? I first went to Indonesia, really knowing nothing about the place. In 2001, um, I was asked to make a film about a community of plantation workers living outside of the city of Medan, Indonesia's third largest city, where I made the act of killing. They were in a, planta- a Belgian oil palm plantation, 60 miles out from the city, um, and they were str- the film was meant to chronicle their struggle to organize a union mm-hmm. in the aftermath of a military dictatorship where unions were illegal. Mm-hmm. And it turned out the biggest obstacle they faced in organizing a union was fear. Now, they needed a union badly because the women workers were spraying a, pestic- a herbicide that was destroying their livers and killing them in their 40s, mm-hmm. and they needed a union so that they would be able to stop poisoning themselves, but they were afraid to organize one because their parents and grandparents had been in a strong plantation workers' union until 1965. They'd been arrested as communist sympathizers simply because they were in a union, Mm -hmm. placed in concentration camps, and then dispatched out by the army to be killed by local death squads. And that was my first encounter with the genocide. I made that film and then recognized that It was as though I had wandered into Germany 40 years after the Holocaust and the Nazis were still in power. Mm -hmm. And I felt I need to come right back and give this extraordinary, horrible situation whatever it demands of me. Well, maybe, maybe extraordinary is the wrong word, because I think I recognized because I had come to this situation through plantation workers who were making palm oils, which is, was in everything, so many things that we buy, margarine, skin cream, whatever, mm-hmm. I recognize that perhaps we, everything we buy is produced in places where fear keeps people too afraid from organizing unions, so that this, therefore, can be seen not this world in which it's like the Nazis have won this total impunity mm-hmm. in the aftermath of political violence might not be some distant, far-off reality, but the underbelly of our own reality. And um, I, 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 so I felt I needed to come back and, exp- and, and make a film adequate to addressing this situation. And it would take whatever it takes. It would, I would have to give it however 
much of my life that it would demand. I went right back, that was in 2003, after making this first film, and found that every time I'd film with the survivors, we would be stopped by the military or the police Hmm. uh, because they were still being monitored. They had been designated as, quote-unquote, unclean by the government. And they would yet, yet they would send me, the survivors would send me on these grim and painful missions to speak to neighbors who they knew were involved with the killings to see if I could get information about how their loved ones had died decades earlier. And I would meet these perpetrators and they would boast about what they had done. Mm. They were open. Within minutes of meeting them, I would be circumspect at first in the way I approached them, but then I would say, look, what you know, I'd say, what did you do for a living? And they would reply by telling me these horrif- horrifying stories of mass killing. Um, often with a smile on their face, often in front of their grandchildren, their children, their wives. And I started to ask, what is going on? How do these men, why are these men so open? What is the nature of their boasting? How do they want to be seen by the, the rest of their society? How do they think I see them when they talk this way? How do they want their grandchildren whom they're in front of whom they're speaking? How do they want their grandchildren to remember them? And how ultimately do they see themselves? Because it was clear to me these men were not crazy. They were not psychopaths. They were not monsters. They were ordinary people. And they had this openness and this boastfulness that clearly was a symptom of their of the fact that they'd ne- never been removed from power and never been forced to admit that what they did was wrong. Yeah. And in some ways, uh, the notion of their of their mission was reinforced by so many social and political uh, structures in, the, in their country as well. Um, yeah, there's a wonderful moment, I think, or a very telling moment in the act of killing where Adi, one of the two killers in the film, says, killing is the worst thing you can do, but if you're paid well enough for it and you can get away with it, do it. But then you need to make up an excuse so that you can live with yourself afterwards. And the government provided everybody with an excuse who was involved with the killings, propaganda justifying it, propaganda celebrating it. And these men have clung to that excuse for dear life ever since so that they don't have to wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and see a mass killer. Now, this character, Adi, who I just mentioned, I think he's smart enough to see through the excuse. And so he does something rather different to live with himself. He plays at feeling remorse. But it turns out to only be a kind of playing at feeling remorse. And in the end, he's revealed to be the biggest, sort of the most cynical and hypocritical of them all. We're speaking with uh, Joshua Oppenheimer. The film is called The Act of Killing. Um, opens t- in theaters today, uh, July 26th, here in Los Angeles and throughout uh, Southern California. Um, I, I, I just go back, sort of give some context to the history of this. This mass killing occurred uh, right around the time Suharto uh, was became president, or was it just part of a crackdown? Yeah, no, it, this is how Suharto became president. Okay. In 1965, there was a Suharto launched a, a right-wing military coup, mm-hmm. which involved, was, was consolidated by murdering somewhere between half a million and two and a half million alleged leftists. Yeah. So, so in, and in subsequent, just to, again, continue this thread forward, in, since 1965, um, has he, uh, as he held on to power for what, about another 20 years or so, 25 <laughs> 33 years. 33, thank you. Um, he, he continued to reinforce uh, this these paramilitary um, organizations who essentially continued this 
this regime of terror. That's right. I think there is in that you can. That's right. <laughs> well, and now let's. I want to talk a little bit before we get too far into our discussion w- about your co-director, um, who's given ample credit in the uh, in the for the film, uh, anonymous. Now, uh, I do not want to. Obviously, I think uh, his security and, and safety are at risk here, so I don't want to get too far into his identity. But he, someone who lives in Indonesia, is that? Yeah, he lives in Indonesia. He was my production manager, my assistant director, my second cameraman. Mm -hmm. He helped with the editing, but above all, he was my main creative sounding board. And one of the things that I'm most proud of about this film is that it's making a difference in Indonesia. And it's doing so because Indonesians have, have welcomed the film as a work of Indonesian cinema. And the dialogue with Anonymous is what... It, I think, really ensured that everything in the film feel totally authentic to Indonesians, that it never once feels like the work like a, uh, the work of a stranger or an outsider. And that, that is, I think, perhaps his biggest, that plus the courage and love and support that he gave me, that is his, that is his biggest contribution. Oh, it's, and now, Joshua Oppenheimer, the, uh, the, your ability, and now I hear uh, someone speaking the Indonesian language during the film. Is that yourself? It's me. So you learned from, you learned, obviously you learned the language. Now, let me ask you, in terms of your, the acceptance on, on the part of the, these, these people that you were um, chronicling, was being an American and their love of American culture and cinema, was that a part of the, one of the reasons where you were able to gain their confidence? What do, what do you attribute that to? I think it's really because... I, I think it's, it's complicated. I, I don't think it really was about me being American. I think it's that I approached them with an openness, gave them a chance to tell their stories, um, and, and refused to condemn them as human beings, as entire human beings, even as I never for a second forgot my condemnation of their crimes. Yeah. I, I think that gives this film an amazing power, is that um, there is, that at no point did I feel that you as a filmmaker were in any way trying to, uh, <laughs> a better way to put it, but goose this sort of process along. It it felt it didn't feel forced at all. It felt like all of these the the, the things that you chronicle came from them. But you're obviously in a in a position to to document it. Um, who's how in in the process? And I think it's important to point out to our listeners that in the process of this documentary, in the in the course of this documentary, they begin filming. Uh, a f- a making a film of, to that chronicles their own killings. Yeah, they make How? scenes for my film. They they're never making a separate film. Okay, but it, it, it but it certainly feels like they are because they take such ownership over it and they get so into it. So they're in a sense assisting you in the making of this documentary. Is that is that fair? Yeah, that, that's right. What I said, you know, is I met perpetrator after perpetrator working my way across North Sumatra, up the chain of command, through the region. They were all boastful. They were all open. Within minutes of meeting me, they would take me to the, offer to take me to the places where they killed, whereupon they would launch into these simple demonstrations of it. And they were so open. And I was trying to understand why are they so open? What's the function of this boasting? How do they want to be seen? How do they see themselves? And I devised the film's method of letting them 
show me what they did in whatever way they wish. Let them stage themselves as a response to that openness, as a way of understanding the whole regime that they've created and how we as human beings live with our actions. And I, I in the, uh, was very open with them. Anwar was the 41st, the main character was the 41st perpetrator I filmed. And so long before I met him, I pretty much understood what had happened in in the region. And I started to, I, my questions started to shift from what happened in 1965 to what is happening now with their boasting. So I developed this method and I proposed to them very openly saying, look, you've participated in one of the biggest killings in human history. Your whole society is based on it. Your lives are shaped by it. I want to understand what it means to you and to your society. You want to show me what you've done. So show me what you've done in whatever way you wish. I'll film the process. I'll film the uh, reenact the reenactments, and we'll combine this material to answer these questions about how how your society deals with its past and what are the consequences for the present. So I was, in that sense, open from the outset about you know uh, about why I was doing this, and of course they knew from the beginning that they're not making a separate film. It would have, there's no narrative thread that right. holds their different fiction scenes together. Right, right. It, it's, it's hard to convey, and I, I want our listeners to, to understand this, it's difficult to convey in an interview with the director of this film just how powerful this film is in terms of it, it's, it's jaw-dropping to watch people who who are so um, banal about the what they uh, is that the right word? I don't know if banal yeah, is right. To watch people, I think it is. It's it's just as for me, it was totally shocking to see people proud, seeming with seeming pride, take me to the places where they'd killed. Show me how they killed. Show they how how they would lead, beat people up until they were, you know, too weak to walk. Drag them down a road bring them to a riverbank, cut off their head, just as that totally astonished me at the beginning of this journey. For viewers, I think, to watch men not just yeah, act out, plan, cast, rehearse, and shoot scenes that involve of, of their own crimes as a way of understanding and then see them react to that and start to wonder whether what they did was justifiable after they've gone so far down this road of celebrating it it is i think uh, it is a surprising experience it is it truly is and 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 also to give some other context to what happened in indonesia during this period of time by the way we're speaking with the director of the act of killing uh, joshua oppenheimer and the film opens today july 26th here in uh, southern california um the, the, we'll talk a little bit about the the uh, the paramilitary, the the largest paramilitary group, and the amount of in sort of involvement at a very high level of the government that they have with these, with this one particular paramilitary that you highlight. Yeah, throughout Indonesia, the army outsourced a lot of the killing to paramilitary groups. In North Sumatra, they used a group called Pancasila Youth, which was strong in North Sumatra at the time, but has become a national paramilitary movement now with three million members. Um, and they, the, they, they basic, the paramilitaries often were uh, composed of criminals, gangsters. Uh, I suppose it makes sense the army would recruit assassins from the ranks of gangsters because gangsters are people who have a proven capacity for and willingness to do violence. Um, 
in North, in Medan, where I made the act of killing, the gangsters. There's a, there's a ripple here. I should say just one about the about the high-ranking officials. The, you see in the film, you see the vice president of Indonesia yeah. wearing the orange camouflage fatigues of this paramilitary movement. Now, orange cam- camouflage is normally something that's designed so that you blend in. Obviously, orange camouflage is designed so that you stand out, so that you're fright. You look frightening. Um, the, the the vice president dons these camouflage fatigues and says, we need our thugs because we need to be able to beat people up and get things done. He says that to a political, uh, uh, to a congress of this paramilitary group. This same man who said we need to beat people up is the current head of the Red Cross of Indonesia. Oh, my God. Um, and a likely contender for next year's Indonesian presidential race. He... Uh, I would just say also that the, in, in the city of Medan, where I made the act of killing, it's the largest city in Sumatra, the third largest city in Indonesia. It's about four or five million people. Um, the army recruited its g- killers from the ranks of gangsters, but the gangsters were hanging out in movie theaters and scalping tickets. They were doing much bigger crime, too, smuggling, racketeering, whatever. But they were also scalping tickets, and they loved American movies. And in fact, the army placed one of the key torture and killing sites directly across the street from the, the, the from the movie theater from one of the movie theaters so that the movie that the gangsters working in the movie theater living in the movie theater hanging out in the movie theater would find it convenient after the midnight show to walk across the street and torture and kill people and it turns out that the way they're killing and the 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 way they're killing was often inspired by whatever movie they had just watched. And so there's this totally surprising convergence of form and content as they're reenacting the killings. It turns out that they have this special love of the Hollywood cinema of the 50s and 60s. Well, um, tell me a, a little, please give me some some reason to hope for the future of Indonesia are we are are there things that are occurring? Um, it one of the surprising things about uh, the act of killing is that the they seem to ha- enjoy uh, and from what I saw in the film uh, popular support. There seems to be uh, there was a television show where the uh, where the woman asking the questions seemed to be completely on board for the f- with the with the the people she was interviewing in this yeah, regard. The state certainly okay. is is not in a good place. You know, that's Indonesian state television, it's the equivalent of the BBC or PBS. They produced a talk show to celebrate the killings and to hype the idea of killers making a movie to celebrate the killings, although they're not celebrating the killings, the, the film is exposing the killings. The the the, yeah. the TV host doesn't know that. Um they make a they they produce a talk show to hype the film before it's even made. Um, similarly, they fly members of ministers in the government up from Jakarta to Medan to act in to act in and help direct see, re, reena- a reenactment of a village massacre. Right. So the government was supportive of the perpetrators, has been ever since the killings, and actually now is very opposed is, is has been silent about the movie or opposed to it. But there is reason for hope in that the movie has... I made this movie in collaboration with a community of survivors of the genocide and with the broader Indonesian human rights community as a way of exposing, above all, to Indonesians themselves what they already know. It comes 
So the film has come to Indonesia like the child in the emperor's new clothes, mm. pointing at the king and saying, look, the king is naked. And everybody knows it. And finally, it's been said so powerfully, so emotionally by the perpetrators themselves that there's no denying it anymore. So people are, the film has, is actually triggering a sea change in how Indonesians talk about their past and about how a, a very corrupt and morally bankrupt regime has been built essentially on mass graves. And so the film, the film has, as of the 1st of April, had been screened 500 times in 95 cities. We're talking, uh, we're talking screenings ranging between 330 and 700 people. So it's a lot of people have seen the film. And the Indonesian media, in response to the film, has started to really publish in-depth in investigations of what happened and exposés of the killings and the boasting about the killing that goes on now, the impunity for the killings. They started publishing in-depth in investigations and 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 in that sense broken their silence because of the film uh, that, that, they've made, that they had maintained for 47 years. Well, well, congratulations on that. I think shame seems to be maybe the first step in, in this process here uh, of, of coming to grips with this hor horrible past. Um, I, let me, I don't generally ask directors uh, this question, but how have you been changed uh, in the process of making uh, in, uh, the act of killing? The, the, it took, it, the, the film took seven and a half years to make, wow. so it's a big part of my life, and it was a very painful, emotional journey. I think the film has made me completely unwilling to judge entire human beings. I, I think... I think that I, I never for a second lost my condemnation of the crimes that the men in the film have committed. But I refuse to see an entire person as bad, um, as evil, as a monster, as a psychopath. And, and I think that actually has, that's actually makes me open to people in a way that perhaps I wasn't before. Hmm. Well, uh, thank you. I want to thank you so much for being here. By the way, I want to also, just before I let you go, the last 10 minutes or so of this film are remarkable. The whole film is remarkable, but the, the and Anwar Congo's realization, if you will, I don't want to give it much more than that. I don't want to say much more than that, but there's a certain, there's a catharsis in, in, in at least it, yeah, I just, Please watch this film to its conclusion because it's 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 a extra, to say it's powerful is an understatement. I it was a deeply moving film for me to watch and to be a part of. And I'm so glad that you were part of uh, film school today to be uh, to be here for the interview. It was just wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.